Alrighty, we are going to have two readings. Our first reading is from Philippians chapter 1, uh, and it's, um, Paul was writing it from prison. Uh, it's a letter to the Philippians where he was put in prison for preaching the gospel. So if you want to flick to Philippians chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to be part, depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you and your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ. Then whether you come and see sorry, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And our second reading is from Mark chapter 6. And it follows on from last week, straight on from last week, where we heard about the little girl who was raised from the dead. So Mark 6 starting at verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in a synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't he the carpenter? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet 
as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. Thanks, Corinne. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you. Um, If you're visiting here for the first time, joining us for the first time, my name's Tim. I'm part of a broader pastoral team here at the Lakes. So a very warm welcome to you as well. Now, if 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 you stick your head out for Jesus, stick your neck out for him... Um, It can feel kind of risky, and many of us can probably relate to different experiences where that's happened, especially if you stick your neck out and it gets whacked, you know, um, to say that you follow Jesus, align with Jesus, um, and you get whacked for it, uh, that pain, hurt, and cost, you feel it. Um, A friend of ours, um, who's also a brother here at the Lakes, Alex, and he's given me permission to tell this story, it was, um, so this is the week before the Mardi Gras weekend, um, last year, he called me up and he was a, a little bit worried about what was going to happen with his job because he'd just started in a small firm and on the week before Mardi Gras, so early in the week, um, the social team for that, for that company had said, right, everyone, what we're going to do is we're going to knock off early on the Friday, we're all going down to uh, the pub, we're going to celebrate the Mardi Gras and dress up in colours. Now, he had a colleague that is a Christian, and a colleague was talking to Alex and just saying, oh, I'm really uncomfortable about this. I don't particularly want to do this, and likewise for Alex. So the two of them approached the social team and said just really nicely, look, um, we we love socialising and we love hanging out with people here at work, but as Christians, um, we just feel uncomfortable promoting um, the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras and just uh, with our conscience, we'd just like to step back, say, is that okay? We'd like to do that. Anyway, um, Alex called me up just after that conversation because he was aware that it probably hadn't been received very well and the next Monday when he got to work, he and his colleague were advised that they need to undergo tolerance classes um, and so here's an example where when he was talking to me, Alex was talking to me, he, he was feeling the cost of what it had just meant to stick his neck out. Um, he had just got into this firm. It was the career path that he wanted. Um, he'd been, his family situation is that they'd spent a lot of time studying and really needed uh, him to start making some money. And he, he was on the journey and he thought, man, my career path my job opportunity for my family is all in jeopardy at this point. Now, I'm sure many of us can relate to that as Christians, that sticking your neck out for Jesus uh, can hurt. Um, You feel the risk, and especially if it gets whacked. And there may be people here who you don't yet call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're thinking about these things. Um, But I'm sure for you, as you've been attracted to Christianity and the things of Jesus in any way, um, that's what's probably going on for you, the, the risk. If I was really to go down this path and follow Jesus, um, what that might mean for my relationships, maybe my marriage, my family, um, you too, I'm sure, feel something of the risk to stick your neck out for Jesus. 
So the big question when it comes to following Jesus, wherever that leads, is, is it really worth it, especially if the cost is high? Today we're going to be looking at Mark's gospel, where Mark tells a a flashback story about the extreme cost it was for John, a character called John the Baptist in the Bible, as he remained faithful to God's kingdom, faithful to Jesus, and it actually cost him his life. So he stuck his neck out for Jesus, but wow, more than getting whacked, uh, his head was lopped off. And Mark's gospel tells this story because he wants all of us who are disciples of Jesus or if you're thinking about following Jesus um, to to weigh life, even at the most extreme point, the most extreme cost, to weigh that against what the idea of the kingdom of God is all about. So we'll read this flashback, Um, we'll continue reading on from where Corinne left us, but just a a couple of comments. So turn your Bible open to chapter 6, a couple of brief comments on what we read so far. Um, In Mark's Gospel, there's lots of excitement going on um, with Jesus' ministry. So chapter 1, you hear Jesus also is proclaiming the kingdom of God, but by and large, most of the stories that Mark tells are exciting. Jesus is doing lots of things, healing people from... Uh, lots of diseases that are about to cause people to die, pushing back demons. Uh, he has come to pronounce the kingdom of God and he is welcoming people into God's fellowship, pronouncing before people that they have forgiveness of sins as they turn to Jesus. Um, but things change at chapter 6. So where Corinne started reading for us in verse 1, after all this excitement, Jesus actually arrives in his hometown, Nazareth, And Mark reports for us that he wasn't really welcomed there. Uh, He even gives some quotes of what people around the town were saying. And basically the tone is, hey, who is this fella? Jesus, how can he be this famous and popular and doing all these wonderful things? We know him. You know, you can imagine someone saying, hey, just the other day, um, you know, I was sitting there with my family having dinner, the wooden table collapsed. So I took it down to Jesus' shed and he fixed it up. He was a carpenter. Hey, we know his sisters. I dated his sister. You know, that they're all right. But um, really, I don't think he's the kind of stock where he says he can connect us to God. He can fix furniture, but can he really fix us towards God? And there's big question marks over Jesus's legitimacy you know wasn't was was he really joseph's son so they're they're a little bit they find it crazy that jesus can be um this famous and and particularly as he claims to connect people to god and it's at this point that jesus says that a prophet is not with honor in his hometown and jesus sets up for his disciples that There can be rejection as you proclaim, that's what it means to be a prophet, to proclaim the kingdom of God and call people to repentance. The next section that we also read, so that picks it up at verse 7, is that Jesus, um, he sends his disciples out to also preach the kingdom of God and he's up front, he foregrounds for them that some people will welcome that message but other people will will reject and it's at this point that mark so just as just as mark has told us that jesus is up front that people some people will welcome others will reject the kingdom of god 
that Mark takes us into a flashback of an extreme rejection, an extreme cost for one of Jesus' cousins, in fact, John the Baptist. So we're going to read that together and make a few comments along the way. So open up to verse 14. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. So King Herod heard about this. So this is all all the disciples proclaiming the kingdom of God. Heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and still others claimed, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. You've got here Herod, who's really unnerved at this point. Like he's, he, he thought he, with his power and control, he had snuffed out John the Baptist and what he was on about. And so it would be very scary if you had done that to then hear that it kind of hadn't worked and who knows exactly what he's thinking whether he thinks that you know the spirit of John is somehow you know going on again or whether he actually thinks John has been raised from the dead but he knows that he had John beheaded and so he is very unnerved I think he's he's probably thinking wow I do not have the power and control that I thought I had and he comes from a, a family where The whole Herod family in history is known to be paranoid about their power and control. I've got a map for us to just uh, give a bit of a picture of... You could put that up on the screen, thanks. So potentially what Herod looked like. But you can see that map of Palestine, the land of um, Palestine. That sort of pink and purple area. So even though it sort of cuts across the River Jordan, that is the region that this Herod, his name's Herod Antipas, that this Herod ruled. And so Jesus is up the top near that lake, the Sea of Galilee. That's sort of where he has been walking around and it's come to Herod's attention. So uh, he, Herod, I should also point out, uh, Herod Antipas is not Herod that we hear of at the start of the Gospels. Uh, Herod the Great is the one that you hear of at the start of the Gospels. Herod the Great was, he's known, Josephus records for us. Josephus is a Jewish Roman historian. He records for us a whole stack of things that Herod the Great did because of his paranoia to take control of his kingdom. And so um, this is not Herod the Great, this is Herod Antipas's son. Now, Herod Antipas, sorry, Herod the Great's Let me put another graph up. This will help track. It's very confusing. In fact, there's more sons than that, but I I was trying to simplify it in this. Herod the Great is up the top, um, and it looks like even some of my graph has disappeared. Is there another click there? No? Okay. We'll correct that. Herod the Great is up the top. He had a number of different sons. He murdered a number of his sons out of his paranoia because he thought that they might usurp him. But there's meant to be different names under there. The, the other Herod that is highlighted is one of those sons, Herod Antipas. So that's just to say that this Herod, Herod Antipas, grew up under a father that was angsty and paranoid about his own power and control. 
Um, and Josephus, this historian, records for us that Antipas went upon his father's death to Rome to ask that the emperor would give him rule of the entire kingdom because what his dad had done is actually carved it up into four little slots. But he, he then goes and wants the whole kingdom, but the emperor said no. So it's just a little insight that you know, he's after power and control. He's nervous. He's fighting for that. And Josephus also records for us that it's on that trip to Rome that he went with one of his brothers, Philip. Philip had a wife called Herodias, and that's where an affair took place. And Herod Antipas took the wife of his brother, which was not good to do and not the right thing. So keep reading with me. Uh, Let's come to verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife, whom he had married. So here we get a picture of John the Baptist has been preaching faithfully the things of God and taking it up, you know, the whole speak truth to power, taking it up to Herod Antipas. Now imagine, imagine the risk you would feel knowing all that about Herod and going up to him and, saying, and calling him to account, uh, particularly as he proclaims to be somewhat of a king representing the Jews, calling him to account. And we know that John, when he preached the kingdom of God, he was preaching that God's kingdom is near. This is God's world. God is king. And God is coming to show all that he is king. And anyone who is trying to take God's kingdom will be pushed aside. But there is opportunity to repent. These are the things that we know that John the Baptist preached. He preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. So he would have been in up near Herod and uh, preaching the kingdom of God. And you, you can imagine, that as he's put in prison, he would be asking the question, is this worth it? Um, the other Gospels actually record uh, some moments where John the Baptist actually sends out some messengers to Jesus to say, are you the real deal? Um, you get something of maybe there were some doubts as he's feeling a terrible prison circumstance probably thinking his life really is on the line. Is this really worth it? Verse 18, uh, verse 19. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Here you get a picture of Herod, a conflicted man. Um, Herodias, this illegitimate wife that he's taken, she's just hell-bent on having John exterminated. But Herod wants to kind of protect John from Herodias's murderous intent... And we hear that he, so on the one hand, he's locked John up, but then he's protecting him. He wants to live his life his own way, taking Herodias as his wife, and yet he likes to listen to John the Baptist, the things that John 
were saying. I feel here you've got a picture of a conflicted man who is kind of divided in his desires. Um, he, he desires the things that he wants. He wants power and control. He wants to, he takes what he wants. Um, but then as John the Baptist comes and speaks a word from outside of his realm and power, a word that actually invites him to take the opportunity now to repent, to come before the kingdom of God, become, come before king, the king, God. There's a desire that John the Baptist has that awakens. He's got the desire for Herodias, but then there's this attractive desire to the kingdom of God. He likes what he hears. Um, he's puzzled. He's perplexed. He's at a crossroads in life because here are two options as to what will bring life and satisfaction for him. Keep going the way of uh, taking what he wants and ruling his own life or this attraction to the kingdom of God where there's forgiveness and welcome and eternal life. We see Herod here at a crossroads. Verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. Now, when you hear language like the opportune time in storytelling and telling a narrative, it holds you in suspense, hey? When you hear time, time is always pacing through in stories and it means that something climactic, fate, outcome is about to happen. Finally, the opportune time came. And the other thing is you've been hearing the whole message of the kingdom is the time is now. You know, the kingdom of God is near. Time is of essence. It is bearing down upon King Herod. Verse 21, finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias, so this would be Herod's niece, when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. We're taken into a lavish birthday party of Herod um, and knowing his background, it's full of ego and status, lots of men jostling for their positions. They come before Herod, Herod's great banquet. There's, there's wine and dining, uh, there's dancing and our imagination can fill the gaps as to what is going on. Uh, Josephus, again, this Roman, Jewish Roman historian, says that Herod Antipas, this guy, was well known for his lavish, drunken, erotic parties. So does anyone reading this that knows some of that background, especially the first readers, would have uh, understood what's going on. Um, but she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Again, Herod is at a crossroads. He, he was pleased with some of the things that John the Baptist was saying, but now he's in a moment where he's pleased by his desires. He's a divided man. He's conflicted. Um, he likes what John the Baptist has to say. Uh, another way that can be translated, that like word, is gladden. It's almost like a word that... 
you know, just like you get intoxicated uh, by alcohol. You know, so here he's at a party intoxicated and about to be led down one way. But then the kingdom of God it was so attractive that it's like intoxicating and inviting. Herodias came in and danced. She pleased Herod and her dinner guests. On with the second half of verse 22. The king said to the girl, Ask for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Man, here is King Herod, now just swept away by his own desires. Um, And it's kind of delusional at this point. I think we're meant to kind of read how delusional Herod has become as he's intoxicated by his own power and desires. Because he speaks almost godlike, doesn't he? When he says, um, oh, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. He's acting like a king that has power that kind of exceeds his own limits. Like if you know the the background, some of which we talked about at the beginning, um, Herod can't even get the kingdom that he wants off the emperor. And he has not learnt that he's he's a man under limits. And yet here he thinks he can hand out parts of his kingdom like they're a mere object. And he he gives a promise that he swears by an oath. And and do you see here that this is a this is a this is how crazy and delusional he is at this point, that he actually offers a promise with no content. So he offers a shell of a promise to this girl, saying, You can fill it with whatever you want. And he binds himself by oath, ironically, to some superior power. So that's very ironic for a guy <laughs> who thinks he's got all the power. And he, he, he locks himself into guaranteeing, at the expense of his own rule and law, to fulfil whatever someone else populates that promise with. Um, that, I think we're meant to kind of see that's really delusional. That's, that's crazy. He binds himself beforehand, in advance, before even knowing what the, the promise, what the content of the promise is going to be. I think here we get a picture of no matter what station in life, um, part of what the Bible constantly does for us, whether you're a king, a CEO, uh, whatever role or power position you might have in your life, um, to, to act in a way without regard to God, your kingdom will come down. The Bible is full of stories of how people with their power and their ego, their kingdom might rise for a moment, but it eventually falls. I've got a couple of uncles who used to be in the police force. Um, they were detectives. And they, they shared with me, um, particularly one of them who would go in, he was a detective in Victoria, and he did some of the really high, hard cases that some criminal for a long, long time would get away with murder. Um, and you just couldn't catch him. But I remember he was on one case, and he, he shared with me, Just wait. In time, it will happen. 
Because his experience was that even for very, very smart and clever criminals, um, history always shows that they get caught because of a mistake that they make. And it's not quite a dumb mistake, because they're usually very precise in covering their tracks, but it's a mistake that comes out of ego as they try to pump themselves up. I just think of the wet bandits in Home Alone. I don't know if you've seen that movie and, you know, because they spend their whole time wanting to identify themselves. Yep. So their ego and status is what brings their kingdom down. The Bible is full of stories. Here we are presented with a king who is um, pressing in on God's people, particularly John the Baptist, and we're to see that he, he, he has this imaginary power. He has this imaginary power that he actually doesn't ultimately possess. All right, let's keep going. Verse 24. Uh, Time starts to move really quickly now. Um, She went out, so this is the girl, she went out to her mother and said, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on the platter. The king was greatly distressed. Because of his oaths and the dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. Time moves really fast in this last part of the narrative. And uh, a man who was divided in his desires and had an opportunity um, is overwhelmed by his desires and makes a decision really quickly. And in this moment, we see him turn his back on the kingdom of God. Uh, And the irony of the opportune time had now gone for him um, to show repentance. And we see that John the Baptist's life is taken Herod trades all that he all that he could have with the kingdom of God, repentance, forgiveness, eternal life for this moment of ego, stroking his ego, fleeting sexual kicks, and he traded it all in. Now the last verse of this flashback that Mark gives us, verse 29, says, On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. That's such a poignant line, isn't it? It it presses the question, is it worth it? Anyone reading this, hearing a story about aligning with God and and then ultimately having to give your life in an awful execution... It presses the question, is it worth it? Mark has written this extreme cost to John in detail because his first readers most likely would have identified and resonated with such an execution. We know that when Mark wrote this gospel, he wrote most likely to Christians in Rome under their persecution. So Nero, 
Uh, I think it's around AD 64, was the emperor, and he was, he was very aggressive towards Christians. And so many people who had identified as followers of Jesus would have been seeing their own loved one, their own loved ones, as just a corpse after brutal torture. Um, you can put the next slide up. There's a picture here. Um, these are just some, some artworks of the terrible persecution that took place at that time. Um, it, it's also thought that this is when the Apostle Peter was killed um, for proclaiming the kingdom of God, crucified upside down. It's, it's highly likely that the Apostle Paul was also killed at this time in Rome under Nero's persecutions. Um, Mark is writing uh, to Christians who are asking the question, is this worth it? And he spends time giving great detail of an execution and the dynamics behind it that likely resonate with what many people were going through. One of the things that Mark, I think, wants all disciples of Jesus to know is that to measure their life, even if it's at great cost, against the reality of the kingdom of God. So right from the beginning of Mark's gospel, on view is that time in this world and this life is short, the kingdom of God is coming, and Jesus is giving people opportunity to be welcomed through forgiveness into God's kingdom. Even if it's great cost, Jesus puts up front for us, as we read, that some people will welcome that message, other people will reject it. There will be, it will be risky, and it may even be an extreme cost. But we are called as disciples of Jesus to measure even the cost of our life against the equation of the kingdom of God coming. So here's something else that Jesus says just a couple of chapters on from this. Um, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation? The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. To follow Jesus, Jesus calls us to measure even this life against the reality of the kingdom of God. And we're given a contrast to the delusion of Herod um, so that we too, you know, we, under that great pressure, we might be deluded that power, safety, Life actually resides with the the rulers and leaders of this world. But in the end, Herod self-destructs. His kingdom rises and then falls. And Mark's gospel also um, takes us to one other death in detail at the end of his gospel. And we're going to get to that in coming weeks here at church. Um, But it's probably worth noting that most people, when, when... Mark wrote his gospel. The first people that read it would have been a group like us and they, they would have read it in one sitting. So after reading about John the Baptist's death with that question hanging in the air, is it worth it? Because he's you know, a corpse in a tomb. 
15 minutes later, as they keep reading, they would have read about Jesus. Another man who um, even Pilate was intrigued by and reluctant to put to death, but then because of his own vanity and political stuff, crucifies a gruesome execution, crucifies the Lord Jesus, and he too is laid in a tomb by a disciple. Um, But with one difference. It goes on with eight more verses at the end of Mark's Gospel to say that Jesus, this one that proclaimed the kingdom of God and said that his own death is what creates forgiveness for people and welcome into the kingdom of God, rises from the dead. And so Mark's Gospel is to encourage all of us who are Christians, even if we are under great pressure to keep the true measure of this life in view and to weigh it against the kingdom of God, um, to measure this life, even the cost, against uh, the reality that Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, will raise his people from the dead. So now in closing, I'd like to just uh, offer a couple of reflections. Um, Before we sing that, Great song, by the way. I'm looking forward to... Are we going to sing that again, Um, that new song that we read? Where's James? That was great. Yeah, wonderful. Just just the lyrics. As we sing it again, lean into the lyrics. The lyrics pick up on... I was picturing many of those Christians in Rome, you know, facing uh, being burnt at the stake for following the Lord. Um, So I'd like to first uh, just speak to all the Christians who are with us today. Um, You know like Alex that I shared at the beginning, um, we all face different kind of risks in sticking our neck out. And you know, for most of us, we're probably not going to get to the point where we actually have to give our life um, for following the Lord Jesus. But there's many people around the world where that is the reality. For some of us, maybe as risky as it gets is that you know, the social club wants to go down to the pub and just get a bit slosho and and we go, we won't do that, we'll stay at home or whatever, and we're just worried about how we feel a little bit different. But there will be times when we do uh, take a stand in our actions or even go on to explain our actions as that we're followers of the Lord Jesus, and it will be costly. Um, and it will impact our family. Um, and you, you know, for us who have families, we are very conscious that We want to raise up our kids and they have safe and prosperous lives. But if we stand up for our faith, what's the impact for them? That can be a great cost. Um, But as you stand up, I encourage you to explain to your kids that equation. Keep in view for them um, how to measure their lives. That this life, whatever the cost, um, it is totally worth it. It is totally worth it because Jesus is the one that raises us from the dead. Talk about how kingdoms rise and fall. Celebrities rise and fall. Tay-Tay will rise and fall. Um, All of our human lives rise and fall. Um, And for those of us who are with us, if you're not yet a Christian, it may be that you are a little bit puzzled or perplexed or interested, like Herod. Maybe there's something of Herod that you can relate to where you feel you're torn, you know. You, you want to chase after running life this way in this world based on your desires. Uh, but there's something at, 
attractive about the kingdom of God, the invitation to have forgiveness of sins and be welcomed with God to have eternal life. Um, I encourage you to consider, keep considering how Herod traded it all and lost out. Um, how Herod progressively became more and more delusional, um, thinking he had more power than he actually has, that he can actually run this life and outrun the kingdom of God. So if you like, if you like to listen to a little bit of the things of God, then I would encourage you to um, keep listening. Uh, don't do a Herod and conveniently lock it up. Um, you might want to think, what's the next thing you could do? What's that next question you've got? Um, even today, you'd like to ask someone or keep coming to church to find out more or our life course as well. Um, Mark has written of an extreme example to show us that even at the cost of life itself, it is totally worth it because Jesus is the one who rose from the dead and raises people from the dead. I'd like to pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as people who are weak and feeble and vulnerable and we worry. And, and Lord, as we go through this life and we're so thankful for coming to know Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, there are times, Lord, where we, we feel that sticking our neck out is going to be costly. It may get whacked. I pray that you'll continue to help us to to weigh these things in the light of the kingdom of God and your promise that no matter, no matter what happens, um, you are the one who raises the dead. You are the one who has forgiven us and will welcome us into your eternal kingdom. I pray that you'll give us courage this week as we um, go through our daily lives. Help us to um, stay strong and identify with Jesus and I pray that for anyone who is thinking about these things that you will encourage them uh, this week to continue considering um, to weigh life at the greatest scale, on the greatest equation, and that they too will find welcome in the kingdom of God. Amen.